There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. The story I'm going to tell today is one I haven't thought about for a few years. And to tell it, we're heading out to Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is only about 10 miles from the Ohio state line. Newcastle sits in Lawrence County, about an hour north of Pittsburgh. The city is almost 220 years old, and 20 years ago, the rest of the country got a glimpse of Newcastle, Pennsylvania, when the History Channel hosted the Great Race there, and over 15,000 people came in town just for that event. The Great Race isn't the only story from Newcastle, Pennsylvania that made national headlines. A little over 10 years later, Newcastle found itself again thrust into the public eye when an 11-year-old boy named Jordan Anthony Brown allegedly shot his father's fiancée, Kenzie Marie Hope, in February 2009. Kenzie was eight and a half months pregnant at the time of her murder, and Jordan was one of the youngest suspects in the country charged with homicide. Why would a little boy shoot his soon-to-be stepmother while she slept? A young woman who everyone said was sweet, caring, and went out of her way to make Jordan comfortable. Where would he get a gun? And what's happened in the years since this tragedy? That's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. And there's a myriad of courtroom drama and appeals that lasted for years as the state tried to determine how to prosecute Jordan, as a juvenile or as an adult. Pennsylvania has the second highest number of juvenile lifers in the entire country. You probably remember me talking about that in the episodes about Lois Vacarson and the organization The Fight for Lifers, who work with juvenile lifers, lady lifers, and implement programs to improve quality of life for prisoners serving life sentences in our state. The age limit when it comes to charging someone as an adult for the crime of homicide is 10 or older. So yes. That means an 11-year-old child can be charged as an adult. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Jordan Anthony Brown lived with his father, Chris Brown. Chris was a single dad, and like most full-time single parents, you do almost everything with your child. Single parents seem to make as much time as they can for their children. Now, that doesn't mean married parents don't. Let me state that formally and for the record. However, in my experience as a single parent, I've always tried to carve out as much time as I possibly could for my child, whether it be dance mom, troop leader, guest reader at the elementary school library, or a volunteer librarian at the middle school. I never wanted her to miss out on parent participation because there was no one else to help share the load. And by all accounts, Chris Brown seemed like that same sort of single parent. Chris Brown coached Jordan's intramural football league where Jordan was a quarterback. He taught his son how to hunt and fish. They often hunted together in the woods outside their rented farmhouse for turkeys. Jordan also participated in shooting competitions. 
And he was a typical kid who liked riding his bike, he enjoyed reading Harry Potter books and playing sports, and he enjoyed spending time with his dad. Introducing a partner to your child can be incredibly difficult when you're a single parent, especially if it's been just you and me against the world. I know this from firsthand experience. Inviting a partner to move in with you and your child moves from difficult to what could sometimes be complete upheaval depending on your child and how you help him or her through that transition. Kenzie Hoke and Chris Brown started dating in May 2008. Kenzie and her daughters moved in with Chris and Jordan in the late fall that same year, and the two got engaged over Christmas. From Jordan Brown's family, there are little comments about Jordan's reaction to Kenzie and her two girls moving into the home he shared with his father. Kenzie's family, however, were vocal about jealousy they believed Jordan experienced. They claimed he was uncomfortable when Kenzie Hoke and her daughters moved in. They also alleged Jordan was jealous of the baby, already named Christopher after Jordan's father, who likely would have been born in March 2009. None of that seems out of the ordinary. Older siblings sometimes struggle adjusting to growing families and a new baby. Blended families experience periods of adjustment which could last for months or even years. Learning that Jordan Brown perhaps struggled with the changes in his family dynamic sounds normal, but the depth of those struggles may have been greater than anyone imagined. On Friday morning, February 20th, 2009, Jordan and Kenzie's older daughter, Janessa, got up, got dressed, and they headed out the door to catch the bus for school. Jordan's father, Chris Brown, left work around 7 a.m., which was his typical schedule. Jordan and Janessa left for school about an hour later, around 8 a.m., and Kenzie Hoke's younger daughter, Adeline, who was four at the time, was still sleeping. Sometime between 9.30 and 10 o'clock that morning, Adeline woke up and she went looking for her mother. She found Kenzie still in bed. Adeline likely thought her mother was sleeping and tried to wake her, but she couldn't. Four-year-old Adeline found Kenzie's lifeless body lying in bed. She was alone, and there was no one else in the home. Adeline ran outside. There was a tree-trimming crew on the property that morning, and she cried out to them as she ran, My mommy's dead! One of the crew members called 911. Years later, that same man cried as he testified in court about seeing a little girl running in the snow, screaming, my mommy's dead. Well, she's lived here about, oh, probably about four months, 26 years old, and she's uh, due for baby in, uh, in March, probably the first week of March. She just went yesterday, and it was going to be over eight pounds. It was with her last night after the party for her daughter, Adeline, a four-year-old that supposedly told the tree cutters that there was something the matter with her mommy, and and then uh, they called 911. So I've talked to her, uh, both the kids and, uh, and uh, Chris's other boy. Um, he has a boy with them. Uh, they don't know nothing. We didn't tell them nothing. We got him uh, staying in a place to, right now that's so uh, they're comfortable without knowing anything. They do not know nothing yet. Uh, we're keeping away from the TV and, and et cetera right now just to hold on until we find out what's really going on and we can be with them. I, I went there and picked them up, and it was really hard for me to hold my composure. But I, someone's got to be strong in this period of time. It's my youngest daughter. I'm, right now, I'm talking from the bottom of my heart. I'm, I'm hurting so bad right now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even believe. Pennsylvania State Police found 26-year-old Kenzie Hoke dead as a result of a gunshot wound to the back of the head from what they believed was a 20-gauge shotgun. 
Chris Brown was called home, and the state police went to Mohawk Elementary School to interview Jordan and Janessa. Chris claimed he was never asked permission to speak with the children, and although police claim attempts were made to reach Chris and ask for permission, they were unable to contact Chris Brown. Chris later testified he never received that call, and in his absence, the school guidance counselor stood in on behalf of a guardian during the interviews with the children. Jordan Brown told police he saw a black pickup truck outside the farmhouse that morning. Janessa said she hadn't heard or seen anything when they left for school. The police had some questions about their statements. So later that night, at 10 p.m., a Pennsylvania state trooper came to the house to interview a 7-year-old and 11-year-old child, who likely were in bed and needed to be woken up for a second round of interviews. Jordan repeated his story about seeing a pickup truck outside. This time, though, when Janessa was questioned, her memories changed. Janessa said she heard a loud bang while she was getting ready to leave for school. She also told the state police she saw Jordan carry a blue blanket out of his room that morning, and she thought he threw something from his pocket into the melting snow along the driveway as they walked to the school bus. The police obtained a search warrant, and that night police found a shotgun shell casing next to the driveway at the Brown House. They also confiscated a youth shotgun leaning up against the doorway outside Jordan Brown's bedroom, and inside his room they found a blue blanket and upon later examination would discover a hole in it about the size of a quarter. At 3 a.m. Saturday morning, February 21st, Pennsylvania State Police arrived at the farmhouse on Wampum Road and arrested 11-year-old Jordan Anthony Brown for two counts of criminal homicide in the death of Kenzie Marie Hoke and her eight-and-a-half-month-old unborn son, Christopher Brown who died as a result of oxygen deprivation after Kenzie was shot. 11-year-old Jordan Brown was taken to Lawrence County Jail. Now, this is an adult prison with over 300 rapists, murderers, and criminals of all sorts. And while Jordan was charged with murder, Lawrence County was not an appropriate facility for an 11-year-old child, but there was nowhere else to put him at 3 in the morning. In the state of Pennsylvania, anyone over the age of 10 who commits murder is immediately charged as an adult. Even if Lawrence County District Attorney John Bongavengo wanted to try Jordan Brown as a juvenile, which initially he didn't, he couldn't because of the laws in our state. At the time of the murders in 2009, Jordan Anthony Brown was one of the youngest children charged with murder in the United States, and certainly he was the youngest in Pennsylvania. The FBI's Uniform Crime Report from 2007 stated just 10 children between the ages of 9 and 12 in the entire country were convicted of murder. Almost 550 children between the ages of 13 and 16 were convicted of murder that same year, compared to almost 2,000 teenagers between ages 17 and 19. Children under the age of 13 committing murder was almost unheard of. If convicted as an adult, Jordan Brown faced life in prison without the possibility of parole. That is the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder in Pennsylvania. There are some states in the U.S. that don't allow life sentences without the possibility of parole. However, Pennsylvania isn't one of them. And if the state hadn't put a stop to the death penalty at that point, Jordan could have faced a death sentence. Getting Jordan Brown out of Lawrence County Jail was one of the first steps in his defense. 
But even before his original attorneys, David Acker and Dennis Alisco, filed a motion to move the case to juvenile court, they filed a motion questioning the validity of the search warrant on a technicality. The search warrant that was obtained on Friday, February 20th, wasn't signed by the police officer who submitted the warrant. If the warrant was declared invalid, then all evidence recovered on the warrant could be thrown out, including the blanket, the shell casing, and Jordan's shotgun. Ultimately, the warrant was upheld because it was signed by a district court judge. The same day attorneys and prosecutors were arguing over whether or not evidence should be declared inadmissible, Kenzie Hoke and baby Christopher were laid to rest. Kenzie's funeral was Tuesday, February 24th in 2009. Chris Brown, who just four months before moved him, his son, his beautiful young fiance, and her two young daughters into a big farmhouse large enough to accommodate their growing blended family, buried his fiance while his son sat in an adult prison in solitary confinement for his protection with wellness checks every 15 minutes. Chris Brown wasn't the only person who suffered immeasurable loss. Deborah and Jack Hoke buried their daughter and their grandson. The Hoke's extended family had all been together just a week before, celebrating Kenzie's youngest daughter's birthday. And a week later, they were standing in a cemetery in shock. A few weeks after Kenzie's funeral, Deborah and Jack Hoke sent a letter to the editor of the Newcastle News, the local county paper. We as a family, friends, and community need to see justice served. We lost a beautiful, caring, loving mother, daughter, sister, granddaughter, aunt, cousin, and friend. We've also lost a perfect, beautiful grandson and loved little boy. We ask ourselves why. We know there's no why. We only know we can never hold Kenzie and Christopher in our arms again, give them a hug, and say we love them. We have a long road ahead of us. Kenzie gave us two beautiful little girls who are going to need all the love and care we can possibly give them. We look at these little girls every day when we see Kenzie. We don't need to say what kind of person she was. She touched so many hearts in so many ways to all those who knew her, and some who don't. We now give this horrible tragedy to God for him to judge and pray justice will be served. In the days after Kenzie Hoke's murder, there was much discussion about motive from the prosecutor, the defense attorneys, and Kenzie's family. Kenzie's brother-in-law, Jason Craner, was quoted in an article by the Associated Press the day after the murder and said, There was an issue with jealousy. He told my son stuff. He actually told my son he wanted to do that to her. Other members of Kenzie's family claimed they heard Jordan say he wanted to pop Kenzie. And there were questions about Chris Brown. Why didn't he act on these allegations from Kenzie's family? Did he even know about these allegations? Why did he allow his 11-year-old son free reign access to a shotgun? Admittedly, I know next to nothing about shotguns. 
And when I started researching youth shotguns, I learned so much more than I expected. I was happy to learn that most of the articles talked about shooting competition for children, hunting with older, experienced family members, and gun safety. From what I read, the key difference between youth and adult shotguns are the barrel length and the magazine capacity. And I welcome comments and feedback from any hunters who might be listening to the show if there are other differences between youth and full-size shotguns or anything else you might want to share about children using shotguns. I referenced Jordan's shotgun and the time I spent reading up on youth shotguns because I was surprised to learn there are guns made especially for children, other than BB guns, which my brother had growing up. I was surprised to learn the recoil of a youth shotgun can be just as powerful as that of an adult gun. And I feel naive saying that because ultimately, whether it's a youth or a full-size shotgun, it's still a weapon. Youth guns do not require registration. But like I read in much of my research, they should still be treated as the weapons they are, and it's recommended that they are locked up when not in use, especially in homes filled with young children like the Brown household. Earlier today, I talked to a friend who knows a little something about hunting. And what he shared with me is that in many communities, especially rural communities, where there are frequent shooting and hunting competitions and children grow up from a very young age around shotguns, locking them up really isn't common practice. District Attorney Bongavengo did not charge Chris Brown with negligence, but he did publicly question Chris's parenting skills for not practicing gun safety and keeping the shotguns locked up. Regardless of the evidence recovered from Jordan's home, and gunshot residue found on clothing he wore the day of the murder, he never confessed. Chris Brown told police he and Jordan used their shotguns just the day before the murder for target practice outside the family home. That was something they did on a very frequent basis. They used these guns regularly. And that's likely why Jordan had shotgun residue on his clothing. If you're hunting in the woods in the winter, it's cold out. And if you're using a shotgun while you're wearing a coat, it's likely that you're going to get a little residue on that coat if you wore it the day before and if you wore it the week before in a competition, like Jordan did. Shotgun residue could have been on multiple pieces of clothing around his room. Both Jordan and his father proclaimed his innocence from day one. Chris Brown even went on Good Morning America about a year after the murder and told the entire country Jordan was innocent. Well, if Jordan Brown hadn't killed Kenzie Hoke, who did? Chris Brown alleged the Pennsylvania State Police never investigated anyone but his son, Jordan Brown. Perhaps they didn't need to, since they believed all evidence pointed at Jordan. But no one actually saw him shoot Kenzie Hoke, not even her daughter, Janessa, who was seven years old at the time of the murder. First, she said she heard nothing, she saw nothing. Then, 14 hours later, she said she heard a bang, and she saw Jordan carrying a blanket. She even claimed she asked Jordan about the noise she heard before they left the house to catch the bus, and he ignored her. There was another name mentioned by friends of Chris Brown, and by the defense attorneys. A man named Adam Harvey, who was Kenzie Hoke's ex-boyfriend. Kenzie Hoke had not one, but two protection from abuse orders against Adam Harvey. The first PFA was issued in 2006, resulting from an incident on May 26th of that year. We were arguing regarding my niece. Then Adam and I started to argue. I said, shut up and act like an adult. And he came into the house where I was cooking and threw the food outside. He started to argue again. Then he threatened me. I went to leave in my car and he took the keys. He threw them at me and pushed me against the steering wheel. He left a big bruise on my forearm. 
His brother showed up and threatened me, and they both left when the police arrived. The police suggested I get a PFA. The second PFA Kenzie Hoke filed against Adam Harvey was on February 3, 2008, a little less than a year before her murder. Adam called my mother's and threatened to take my whole family out when he comes to town. He has left several messages threatening to hurt me and my family. I am in fear of him hurting me physically or my family. He has threatened to hire someone to hurt me several times. I have been talking to Shenango police and they listened to the messages on my mother's cell phone and suggested to me to get a PFA. Adam Harvey was living in North Carolina during much of 2008, but he moved back to Newcastle County shortly before Kenzie's murder. According to Brown family and friends, besides the PFAs that Kenzie Hoke had against Adam Harvey, the two had been involved in a bitter custody battle for years before Kenzie's death. It was alleged by a friend of Chris Brown that a few weeks before her murder, Adam Harvey learned through DNA tests he was not the father of Kenzie Hoke's youngest child, Adeline. Whether or not that's enough to drive someone to murder, I can't answer. Adam Harvey had threatened Kenzie multiple times in the past. He threatened to hurt her. He threatened to hurt her family. He threatened to have her killed. Police claimed Adam Harvey had a solid alibi, and that's in quotes, for the morning of Kenzie's murder. He was asleep at his parents' house, and his truck was parked outside in the snow. There were no tire tracks found in the snow around his truck, so the police believed his vehicle hadn't moved. But when Adam threatened Kenzie in the past, he specifically told her he would hire someone to kill her. Was it possible Adam Harvey did just that, hired someone who perhaps snuck into the house on Wampum Road after Chris Brown left for work, but before the children left for school? Maybe he took Jordan's shotgun and used it to kill Kenzie Hoke, or maybe he brought one with him and he snuck out of the house before the children saw him. Someone who would have had to sneak in and out past a crew of tree trimmers who were on the property that morning. The district attorney didn't think so, and Adam Harvey's name was never brought up again. The DA's office made the decision to prosecute 11-year-old Jordan Anthony Brown as an adult. His reasons were tied to the witness testimony of little 7-year-old Janessa Hoke about the blanket. That fact was considered premeditation. The DA believed Jordan used the shotgun to muffle the sound or hide the gun from his soon-to-be stepsisters should they see him heading into Kenzie's room. The DA also referenced comments Kenzie's family said Jordan made about wanting to hurt Kenzie and her daughters months earlier. All of that in the DA's mind added up to premeditation, and it meant Jordan would be tried as an adult. After almost a week at Lawrence County Jail, Jordan Brown was moved to Allencrest Juvenile Detention Center, although he was still being charged as an adult. And the following week, Jordan was moved again to Edmund Thomas Adolescent Center, which was better equipped and cheaper, to handle someone so young. Although this move made it harder for Chris Brown to see his son because of the two-hour drive each way to Erie, Pennsylvania. The number of doctors and experts from all over the country that weighed in on this case for years is immeasurable. The head of clinical psychology, a man named Dr. Paul Friday from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is a magnet-credited hospital, shared his expertise about brain development in people under 25 years old, especially children who haven't yet reached adolescence. He said that although Jordan Brown probably understood good and bad, the chances of an 11-year-old understanding consequences in the same way he would when he's 21 
was non-existent. Michelle Layton, the director of human rights programs at the University of San Francisco School of Law and co-author of the book Sentencing Our Children to Die in Prison, said at the time of Kenzie Hoke's murder, there were eight cases where 13-year-olds were sentenced to life in prison without parole, but there was no evidence of any child under 13. Her book highlights the fact that the United States is the only country that sentences juveniles to life in prison without parole. In 2009, Pennsylvania had the most juvenile lifers in the entire country. Today, we have the second highest. Michelle Layton described Jordan Brown as an extraordinarily disturbed and troubled child. She was quoted as saying, that's evident by his actions, but that does not make him an adult. We can't pretend that they are adults. No other country does that. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't bring back the dead and it doesn't help anyone. On May 6, 2009, Jordan Brown was arraigned at adult court and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. He pled not guilty. Although his attorneys hoped to have Jordan released on bail into the custody of his father, that request was denied, and he remained at the juvenile center in Erie, Pennsylvania. Over the next six months, Jordan's attorney submitted motions to have his case moved to juvenile court, while Kenzie Hoke's family made it known they wanted Jordan Brown tried as an adult. Inside the courtroom, front row left, Jordan Brown's dad. Front row right, victim's mom, dad, and sister. In between, the 12-year-old accused of murder, facing the judge who must decide what the court will do with him. Evasive, resentful, refuses to accept responsibility. That's the testimony of one doctor about Jordan Brown. Boy is charged as an adult with shooting his nine-months-pregnant stepmom with his shotgun as she slept. The victim's parents are Deborah and Jack. I'm hoping, I'm hoping and hoping he's going to be charged as an adult because that's what he is. He did an adult crime. He did a double homicide and, and worked his way down to do everything to it. Went to the, everything he did was like a clockwork thing. And, and we, it's, it's horrible how he did it. Jordan Brown's dad, Chris Brown, was silent leaving court after appearing on Good Morning America where his comments upset Kenzie's family. Even if you're going to support Jordan and Chris, if you're going to support your son, that's fine. Never once said what a good person my sister was and the fact that regardless, she's gone and the baby's gone and how horrible. Almost one year after Kenzie's murder, Lawrence County, Pennsylvania Judge Dominic Motto heard arguments from Jordan Brown's attorneys to move the case to juvenile court. He denied the motion, ruling Jordan's case would remain in adult court. Judge Motto based his ruling on the heinous nature of the crime, calling it an execution-style killing of a defenseless pregnant young mother. Judge Motto also stated the testimony of the defense psychologist didn't convince him Jordan Brown should be eligible to be tried as a juvenile. It was instead the testimony of the prosecution's psychologist he relied most heavily on. And that testimony indicated Jordan Brown minimized the crime and refused to admit guilt. The Pennsylvania Attorney General's office stated Jordan wasn't amenable to juvenile court rehabilitation because he hadn't accepted responsibility for his actions, nor did he admit to committing the murders. How does that statement in any way align with the concept of innocent until proven guilty? The case hadn't yet gone to trial, yet the judge expected him to admit committing murder before he would consider moving him to juvenile court. I'm not saying Jordan Brown was innocent. But if the only way the state of Pennsylvania would consider moving the case of an 11-year-old to juvenile court was if he admitted guilt, 
there is something seriously wrong with this state. And remember, the murder, the arraignment, the arguments to move Jordan Brown to juvenile court were years before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's ruling that life sentences for juvenile offenders were considered a form of cruel and unusual punishment. And all juvenile life sentences have been put under review since then. I wonder if Jordan's attorneys would have had as much trouble getting the case moved if this was after 2012. Jordan's attorneys appealed Judge Dominic Motter's ruling to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that by demanding Jordan Brown admit guilt before considering moving the case to juvenile court, Judge Motto violated Jordan's Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. The Supreme Court sent the case back to Lawrence County Court, back to that same Judge Dominic Motto for reconsideration. By the time the case finally got back to Judge Motto, it was May 11, 2011. Jordan Brown was now 13, and he'd been incarcerated at a juvenile facility for two years. He still hadn't gone to trial. All of the motions, the arguments, and the hearings since Kenzie Hoke's murder were about where to house Jordan and how he should be tried, as a juvenile or as an adult. His case still hadn't been presented. It hadn't been heard before a judge or jury. And children can change quite a lot between 11 and 13. Moms, aunts, grandmothers, friends, you know what I'm talking about. They lose that baby fat. They lose the look of a little girl or a little boy. They can grow quite a bit in those years. And Jordan's attorneys were worried that by the time he finally stood trial, it could be another few years. By that time, Jordan could be 14 or 15, and he would look very different than the little boy who was barely 11 when Kenzie Hoke was murdered. Meanwhile, there was no direct evidence that could confirm beyond a reasonable doubt Jordan Brown killed Kenzie Hoke. Yes, the shotgun gauges were comparable, but that didn't definitively prove it was Jordan's shotgun that was used in Kenzie's murder. His soon-to-be stepsister initially said she never heard or saw anything the morning before she left for school, and then she changed her story. She was only seven. Why would she suddenly remember seeing Jordan carrying a blue blanket 14 hours later after they left for school. And the gunshot residue, if Chris Brown, Jordan's father, was to be believed, that could have easily been from using their shotguns the day or week before. After being forced by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to reconsider his decision and hearing from experts who believed Jordan Brown would truly benefit from the rehabilitative programs available in juvenile detention, Judge Motto reversed his decision to try Jordan in adult court and the case was finally moved to juvenile court. Is he a kid? Is he an adult? Either way, she has lost her daughter and grandson. Is he a kid in your mind? Is he a juvenile in your mind? No. Not at all. Not at all. Never has been. Debbie Houck is enraged by this decision. She met us at the only place that brings her comfort. Her daughter, Kenzie, her grandson, Chris's gravesite. Last night I come by, they're lit, because we got two new ones. She believes Jordan Brown, 11 years old when arrested for the murders of her daughter and unborn grandson, should remain charged as an adult. She believes that young man made a grown-up decision and should pay the grown-up price. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Mm -hmm. When you can do such a crime at that early of an age, no accident, no motive, 
Absolutely. This latest ruling changing Brown from adult to juvenile troubles her, especially when she believes this was a premeditated murder. Kinsey found shot in the back of the head with a shotgun. She vows to her daughter she will continue to fight this. I assured her that it ain't stopping. Three Western Pennsylvania newspapers, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the Pittsburgh Tribune-Review, and the Newcastle News, all filed appeals in an effort to have the juvenile hearing opened to the public. In the state of Pennsylvania, if you watch news about any cases that are in trial, you'll see old-school courtroom sketches, renderings of what went on during the trial, who's in the witness stand, sometimes sketches of the jury. While reporters are permitted into courtrooms, cameras and recording is not. Juvenile cases may or may not be open to the public. This wasn't the first time the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette appealed a closed juvenile hearing. In 2003, the paper appealed a closed hearing regarding abused and neglected children. The Pennsylvania State Supreme Court ruled in February 2003, Pennsylvania citizens have a constitutional right to attend juvenile court hearings under the circumstances when it's the case of an abused or neglected child. I'd like to think the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette filed that appeal in 2003 from a sense of advocacy for the abused and neglected children. And that's certainly what attorneys for the paper said when the decision was reached in 2003. Their perspective was they hoped opening juvenile cases of neglect to the public would increase public outcry for underfunded welfare programs for children, overburdened juvenile courts and social workers. But that's not really the effect it's had in Pennsylvania. I don't think the paper was concerned with everyday average citizens perhaps wanting to sit in a courtroom. I think they were concerned about their own ability to cover a news story. That Supreme Court ruling in 2003 still upheld a judge's right to declare a hearing or trial secret. In other words, the judge can rule on who is and is not allowed to be present during a juvenile hearing. These delays because of appeals from these newspapers to open Jordan Brown's trial to the public risked violating part of his Sixth Amendment rights, the right to a speedy trial. He'd been in juvenile detention for almost three years and hadn't yet gone to trial. Jordan spent birthdays and holidays away from his family. His father, Chris Brown, lost almost everything he had. Certainly, he lost his fiancée. He lost two beautiful little girls who would have been his stepdaughters. They were being cared for by Kenzie's parents and didn't see Chris anymore. He lost his son to the system. He gave up everything he had to cover Jordan's legal fees. He lost his job. His sister passed away while Jordan was in juvenile detention. He was harassed and threatened by members of the community who believed Jordan murdered Kenzie Hoke and couldn't understand how Chris could stand by his son or believe Jordan was innocent. And the Hoke family lost so much, too. Their daughter, their unborn grandchild, who could have survived outside the uterus if Kenzie had been found sooner. Kenzie was eight and a half months pregnant with baby Christopher, and babies at that stage in gestation are born probably every day around the world, and many of them not only survive, but they thrive. Kenzie's daughters, Janessa and Adeline, lost their mother. She won't be there for school awards or concerts. Kenzie won't be there for their first date or to do their hair and makeup for prom or to watch them graduate. Every way you look at this case, everyone lost so very much. 
April 2012, over three years after Jordan Brown was arrested and charged with two criminal homicides, his trial began in juvenile court. By the time Jordan's case went to trial, there was a new district attorney, and the case had to be prosecuted by the state attorney general because of a conflict of interest between the DA, Joshua Lamancusa, and Jordan's father, Chris Brown. The case was heard by Lawrence County Judge John Hodge, and Jordan was adjudicated delinquent, which is the juvenile court version of being found guilty in criminal court. Jordan was sentenced to return to the juvenile center in Erie, Pennsylvania, and his case was scheduled to be reviewed every six months. During the years he'd already spent in juvenile detention, Jordan received regular counseling, he received letters of support from his former classmates, his father visited frequently. Upon returning, Jordan continued with his counseling, and as you might expect, his attorneys appealed Judge Hodge's decision and requested a new trial. In this appeal, Jordan's defense team argued three specific points when requesting the new trial. The first point was the prosecution presented no proof that the 20-gauge shotgun belonging to Jordan was the actual murder weapon. Yes, the shotgun shell they found outside the home came from a 20-gauge shotgun, and the gunshot wound to Kenzie Hoke's head could have been from a 20-gauge shotgun, but there was no forensic evidence, no ballistic evidence, proving the gunshot wound that killed Kenzie Hoke was from Jordan Brown's gun. The second point was the prosecution provided no proof Jordan Brown actually fired his weapon the morning of February 20th, 2009. Jordan's father, Chris, told police and prosecutors he and Jordan had been shooting targets the day before, something they did every week, sometimes multiple times a week. So the gun had recently been fired, but there was no proof it was fired on the morning of February 20th. And third, the prosecution never contested the defendant's claims he didn't have enough time to commit the murder, given the circumstances. In addition, Jordan's attorneys, Stephen Colafello and Dennis Alisco, argued that Judge Hodge, the judge who ruled Jordan Brown delinquent in 2012, placed too great an emphasis on police reports of a lack of footprints or tire marks in the snow around the Brown house. The Pennsylvania State Police claimed all footprints had been accounted for by members of the Hoke or Brown families and didn't indicate anyone else had been on the property. Really? That claim is surprising considering a tree trimming company was on the property that morning. Now, by saying that, I don't mean any member of that crew committed the murder. But we know for a fact there were multiple people besides Kenzie, Chris, and their children on the property the day Kenzie was murdered. Reading that the Pennsylvania State Police were so convinced no one else was on the property is a little ridiculous. In December 2014, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court ruled in a 6-to-1 vote Jordan Brown's defense could pursue a new juvenile adjudication hearing. Jordan was 16 years old. A Pennsylvania boy who was convicted of killing his father's pregnant fiance at the age of 11 may get a new trial. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court on Monday remanded the case back to the juvenile court system. This means that Brown's attorneys can now file a motion to challenge the conviction. Brown, who was 17, was arrested in February 2009 for killing 26-year-old Kenzie Halk and her unborn child. Authorities believe Brown took his shotgun to kill, and they suggest he was jealous of the new baby. Stephanie Slifer on our Crime Cider team spoke Monday evening with Lourdes Rosado, who works for the Juvenile Law Center. She worked with Brown's defense team. Rosado said the case will now go back to the original judge who heard Brown's initial trial in juvenile court. The judge will take into consideration the appellate court rulings and will base his ruling, which will grant or deny a motion for a new trial, 
on that. Rosano also said, quote, time for children is really of the essence. Every day he's there is another day of his life. Most of the evidence against Brown is circumstantial. He was originally charged as an adult, but then was tried as a juvenile before he was convicted. Three months later, in March 2015, attorneys Colafello and Alisco were back before Judge Hodge in Lawrence County, Pennsylvania, and they anticipated Judge Hodge could rule in one of three ways, a dismissal of all charges against Jordan Brown, a new juvenile trial, or an appellate hearing. An appellate hearing meant the judge denied the requests for dismissal and new trial and requested a hearing to uphold his original delinquent ruling. Jordan was now 17. In May of that same year, Judge Hodge ruled against a dismissal of delinquency charges against Jordan Brown, and he denied the defense's request for a new trial, and the cycle started again. Jordan's defense attorneys appealed Judge Hodge's ruling. The case went to the Superior Court in September 2016, where Judge Hodge's May 2015 ruling was upheld. In the Pennsylvania juvenile system, delinquent offenders are held until they age out at 21. They can become eligible for parole based on their rehabilitative progress, and that's what happened to Jordan Brown. He was actually released from the Edmund Thomas Adolescent Center in June 2016, three months before the Superior Court ruled on upholding his delinquency charge. Jordan Anthony Brown was 19 when he was released from juvenile detention. He moved to Ohio and planned to go to college. Jordan will remain on probation until he reaches 21 years of age. This case troubles me on so many levels. First, the idea that an 11-year-old would kill someone the way Kenzie Hoke was murdered is chilling. Jordan Brown was a little boy whom everyone who knew him outside of Kenzie's family, who didn't know him for very long, said he was a good boy. He was active in school activities. He had friends. He was reported as being a social kid. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't struggle with the transition of Kenzie and her daughters moving in with him and his dad, Chris. But I have a hard time believing he's guilty based on the evidence presented. Perhaps he is guilty. I certainly can't make that determination, though, based on what I learned in my research. And I want to go back to Adam Harvey for a minute, Kenzie Hoke's ex-boyfriend. He'd threatened to kill her and her family multiple times. That's documented in two protection from abuse orders. I don't consider sleeping family members claiming he was also at home asleep to be a solid alibi. This doesn't mean that Adam Harvey had anything to do with Kenzie's murder. Yet, I find it shocking, considering the two PFAs that Kenzie Hoke had against Adam Harvey that he wasn't investigated. It feels like the police were laser-focused on one suspect, an 11-year-old child, and they had blinders on to everything else. There's some information I found when I was researching this case, and it sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory. I was hesitant to share it because I don't know the people involved, but I'm going to leave out the names. I found a blog written by someone who is friends with Chris Brown. The author posted information from an email he received, and the sender's name was also kept anonymous. One sentence in the email read, When they run into problems, the sons of fathers with status are kept out of the news and out of the courts. But I've never seen it at the expense of an 11-year-old boy. The author claimed Adam Harvey's father was the commandant of the Pennsylvania Marine Corps League. That doesn't mean anyone other than Jordan Brown pulled the trigger that cold, snowy winter morning in February 2009. But this evidence does not convince me beyond a reasonable doubt that he did. I would love to know what you think about this case. 
Do you think Jordan is guilty? Do you agree with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling in 2012 to try him as a juvenile instead of an adult? What do you think about the fact that he's been out on parole for a year? If he is guilty, I can't believe an 11-year-old little boy could truly understand the depth of his actions. The long-term repercussions, not only for himself, but his father, Kenzie's family, and the baby Kenzie carried inside when she was murdered. I am torn eight ways to Sunday over this case. I would love to hear what you think about Jordan and this story. You can comment on my social media pages, on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly, on Facebook at the Twisted Philly Podcast. And I also have some very special thank yous. Thank you to listener Jen M for the audio she provided in this episode. Thank you also to Haley for the audio that she provided. A very big thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you hear in this and every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website, www.emmysarah.com, and you can download her music on iTunes. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.